Well, let me begin today with a question. How many of you are like me and love a good, juicy piece of red meat? Yes, indeed. I, I know the vegetarians in the room are going, yuck. Let me just remind you, when the prodigal son came back, the father did not make a wedge salad. He killed the fatted calf. Amen? I love a juicy piece of red meat. Went out this weekend and got a prime rib. I think if we'd have put a couple of band-aids on there, we could have revived that baby. It was, it was red and juicy. But I will tell you, I didn't used to eat it that way. Uh, growing up, I always was just kind of led to believe that a, a cooked piece of meat wasn't supposed to be red. That's raw meat, and, and you know, if you cook it, it's supposed to be, you get rid of all the red in there. And so for years and years and years, that's how I, there, there were two things you did to meat, to eat it. You, you cooked it through and through, and you cut off every bit of fat. And that's how you ate a steak. And I thought that was the way that you ate it. Until a couple of different things happened that changed my view on that altogether. First, I was on a camping trip with the family. And uh, it got dark on us before we cooked. And so we cooked steaks that night in the dark. And just assumed, oh, it's probably been on there long enough. And the fire's probably hot enough. Well, we judged incorrectly as to how hot we thought the fire was. And we just started eating in the dark. And I thought, man... That steak is just especially good tonight. That thing is some kind of good. And you know where this is going. About halfway through, I had occasion that I had to stop and go do something and took my plate over into the light, and I about swallowed my tongue when I saw what was in my plate. This steak was bloody red and blood all in the, in the plate. And I'm like, oh, holy cow. But then I'm thinking, but good grief, that's the best steak I've ever had. What, what is up with this? Maybe I've been missing out on something. And then after that, I had a friend of mine named Bob who took me to a local restaurant that I had not been to before, and he said, I want to introduce you to something that is some kind of fine. I want to introduce you to a whiskey steak. Now, I'm not a drinking man, and he was quick to point. He's like, all the alcohol is going to be cooked out of it. Let me just tell you, if whiskey tasted like that steak, I'd be an alcoholic. That thing was good. It was beyond good. He, but now, you just have to know Bob. He, he's one of those guys. He's got to coach you up on everything. And he said, now, you've you got to get it cooked right, so we've got to do this thing Pittsburgh-style. Anybody know what a Pittsburgh-style steak is? Oh, man. That's where you sear the outside, and the inside is just blood red, and it just seals in all the juices. And it's not dangerous to eat it that way, because the outside's where the bacteria are, and it, it kills all that. Oh, man. And he, Bob is one of those guys, he's got to coach you all the way through. So he watches me as I'm starting to cut my bleeding steak, and I am pretty sure I heard the cow moo when I stuck the fork in it for the first time. It was that... You know, that kind of Pittsburgh-style steak. And, and he's seeing me as I'm trying to cut off all the fat, and he's like, whoa, whoa, no, 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 no. That, that is not how you're going to eat a whiskey steak. That is a ribeye. And a ribeye is the best cut of meat because it's marbled. It's got little layers of fat through there, and that's what makes the meat so juicy and good. So he said, you just do what you see me doing over here, and you try it that way. Well, I mean, he's not wasting anything, and I'm like, I'm just going to give it a try. It was the best steak I had ever put in my mouth. It was a spiritual experience. I mean, it, it was so indescribably better than anything I had ever gotten hold of before. And that is what we're going to be talking about for the next month, about things that are better. How many of you are ready for a better life than what you have had in the last year? You know, we're about to wind up 2013, and for some, it'll be a chapter of the book that you are ready to close. I want 2014 to be a better year, and I'm sure of this. We can make choices based on God's Word 
that allow it to be a much better year than the year that we've had in the past. And that's what we're going to be focused in on for the whole month of November are these different passages that point us to a better way of living. But it's, it really is tragic as we start to think about that to realize how many of us have settled for just chasing after the good life. You know, it's what we're told is the good life. This is the way you're supposed to live. This is what's going to make you happy. And so we chase after the life that's going to mean that we have more stuff, that we have nicer stuff, bigger stuff, that we're going to have more comfort, we're going to have more ease, and this is the good life. And I'm just going to tell you that the good life is a lot like a medium well steak with all the fat cut off. You know, if it's all you've ever had, it tastes pretty good. It feels pretty all right until the day that you get a Pittsburgh-style whiskey steak with all the fat and trimmings and, and the juices cooked in. And then you realize there is something so much better. Everybody say it with me. Better. We want to dive into better today, but I want to just start with a simple truth. You can't have better until you're willing to let go of the good. You're going to have to let go of the good in order to experience what's better. That's true for a lot of different things in life. You, you don't get the better steak unless you're willing to stop ordering the overdone steak. And you don't get the better life unless you're willing to let go of chasing after some things and willing to set some different priorities in your life. Over the course of the next four weeks, we're going to focus on four verses each of which center around the word better. I hope you'll be able to be here for each of those weeks, but I particularly hope that you'll be able to come back next week when we focus in on, to me, what may be the most important uh, week in the series, where we're going to talk about a passage in Ecclesiastes that says, Better is one handful with contentment than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. We live in a world that drives us to always chase after two handfuls. We live in a world that says you should not be happy with one handful. We live in a world that pushes us and nudges us to a point that we're worn out. We're stretched too thin. We get burned out. We, we can't sleep at night. We, we don't have intimacy in our marriages. We don't have intimacy with our kids when we're constantly chasing after two handfuls that require much toil. And it's just chasing after wind. But better is one handful with real contentment next week i really believe this that for some people next week is going to be the defining word for you that it's going to allow you to live a much different and better life i hope you'll come back next sunday for that but this week we're looking at a at another better verse that's really an important jumping off point for us it comes from the 84th psalm and i, I believe in the power of the word that is committed to memory i just think that it, it does so many things for us when we know truly what the Word has said. And so we're going to together memorize all four of these better verses. Are you, are you willing to work at doing that? I think that, that this is going to be worthwhile stuff. And so uh, each week we're going to rehearse these again and again. And you're going to be doing it in your small group. You'll see it online and in your notes. I want to encourage you. We're going to keep rehearsing these. You, you work at it. But today we've already sung the, the main verse for the day. But I want to set it up with uh, verse 10 of Psalm 84 is our memory verse for the day. But I want to set it up with the first couple of verses of the 84th Psalm where the psalmist says this. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. What's he talking about there? That yearning for the courts of the Lord. 
his, his flesh and all crying out for this, I would remind you that they're writing during a long span of time when God is teaching his people, and ultimately he's teaching us too, about his presence, his holiness, his power, you know, the whole thing of approaching God. And so they're living in a season when the glory of God specifically dwelt in a, in a particular place on the planet. It was in the temple. It was in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And if you wanted to get near God, it was a geographic issue. I mean, how weird is that for us to think about? You know, when we think about getting near God, and we're thinking in terms of, oh, I need to go to church more. I need to be in Bible study. I need to pray more or whatever. No, in, in a very literal sense, in Old Testament times, getting near God at one level was about going to a particular place on the planet. That's why Jews, regardless of where they lived, wrapped their lives around these holy pilgrimages. That they would, if they didn't live in Jerusalem, they would orient their lives around planning these times that they would get to go on journeys to the holy city. Not just to visit the city, but to get as close as they could to the temple. And the temple was, of course, surrounded by all of these concentric courtyards that were separated by walls. So you had, you know, the court of the Gentiles that most of us would wind up in, the furthest outer courts. And then the court of the Jewish women, and then the court of the Jewish men, and then the court of the, the priests. And so this whole picture of people standing at great distances from God, wishing that they could be closer in, and the psalmist is saying, Oh God, how my heart yearns for, it just longs for the opportunity to be near you, to get into the inner courts. I want to be near where your glory dwells. Friends, we're not just talking about getting in the church building. I want to remind you that if you go back and you read about when the temple was finally built, this, this place that would be a dwelling place for the glory of God, that it was on the heart of King David to do this, and his son Solomon actually got to do it. If you go back and read about when the temple was finished and it was dedicated and the glory of God descended on the temple, we just can't easily put into words what that was like. It was so overwhelming the priest could no longer even go about their business. I mean, all you could do was just fall on your face and worship in the presence of God because God was so there. And the writer is saying, God, how my heart longs to know you like that. Because so many times you seem like a, you know, you're far off from me. And I, I want to be able to press in and be near you. He goes on to say in some of the subsequent verses, you know, how lucky the birds are. They get to build their nest in the eaves of the temple because they get to be near your presence, God. Oh, oh to be like them. And he concludes his thoughts where he's just gone on for ver uh, several verses talking about how his heart yearns to be in the courts of the Lord, to be near his God until he gets to the, the place in verse 10 where he says, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked and that's the passage for the day better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere i want you to rehearse this verse with me aloud ready go better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere i would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my god than dwell in the tents of the wicked not bad for our first run let's do it again Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. All right, you read very well. Now let's kill it on the screen and let's put down those outlines and I'm not going to help you. Let's, you do it together. Ready, set, go.
That was actually pretty funny because some of that came out as I would rather be a housekeeper in the dorm. <laughs> One more time. Awesome. You guys are doing great. We're going we're gonna to keep that up until that just drips from here into here. It's a wonderful truth. You know what he's saying when he says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. That, that is like the lowest position. That's, that's the least important thing that, that you could do at the Lord's house. That would be kind of the equivalent today of saying, I would rather be a janitor in the Lord's house than to be an important man in the tents of the wicked out here. And just to get to do that for one day would be so much better than a thousand days out here in the world doing what I want to do. That, that sounds so good on Sunday morning, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't that just have this wonderful spiritual ring to it? Yes, I'd rather, rather have one day in the Lord's presence than a thousand days doing anything else. And when we're in church with our Sunday school faces on, it's yes and amen. But you know what the problem is? Most of us don't believe that. Can we just be honest enough with one another to admit most of us do not believe that opening line? that better is one day in the courts of the Lord than a thousand anywhere else. Some of you are looking at me like, I'm not sure what to say back. It's okay to agree. Most of us, deep in our heart of hearts, don't believe that verse. We'd live differently if we believed it, wouldn't we? Wouldn't you reorient your life different from how it is now if you really believe this verse? The reason that we don't believe this verse is because sin is so much stinking fun. That, you know, we look at this, and on the surface of it, a lot of us are sort of prone to go, why really would it be so great to have a day in the courts of the Lord? I mean, why do we even need to pursue that kind of life? Getting up on Sunday, going to church, having to get dressed for church, having to sing songs and listen to a guy get up and talk and try and stay awake and look like we're interested and, you know... Why do we need these spiritual rules? And why do we need people judging us? I mean, wouldn't life just be simpler to be out there just doing what we want to do? Wouldn't that be fun? And a bunch of you are looking at me like, I don't think I'm supposed to nod my head and agree. <laughs> How many of you know that sin is fun? It is. If it wasn't so much fun, we wouldn't be running back to it again and again. Amen? Amen. It's the truth. Sin is fun. And, and the scripture says there is pleasure in sin for a season. It is incredibly fun. Now the problem is, after a while, it will kick your fanny. But while you're doing it, it's fun. Sin is a lot like a sneeze. You know, when it's coming out, it just feels so good. But then, ooh, it just leaves a mess because there's just snot everywhere. I mean, that's just, that's, that's the way sin is. It feels good while it's going on. And then it leaves a mess after the fact. Well, that becomes the tension for us when we get down to it. Which is really better? Forget Sunday school answers. Which do you think is really better? Spending your day and your days in the Lord's presence. Or having a lot more days going wherever doing whatever for a lot of us if we're honest this passage doesn't make a lot of sense and may not ring as fully true 
But I want to promise you today, it is true. For the biggest skeptic in the room who goes, I ain't buying it. I don't think it's better. I hope that by the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's Word to convince you otherwise. Because better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. It's better in a lot of different ways. And maybe as a good starting point in telling you how it's better, just to, to begin to understand that when you experience the presence of Christ, and we're not talking about going to church. We're talking about being in the presence of the Lord. That when you get to, to do that, when you get to experience His presence in a personal way, there's just an overwhelming awareness of sin and righteousness. And instead of feeling condemned by that, there is this fire that begins to burn in your heart instantly for what is right and wanting to get rid of everything that is wrong and suddenly wanting to press in to His presence. In His presence, there is this overwhelming awareness of His love and His acceptance, which comes almost as a shock and a surprise for some of us who feel like God is still ticked off about all the ways that we've messed up. And yet to come into God's powerful presence, there is this awareness. He sees me through and through. He gets me. He knows me. He knows all the ways that I've messed up and he is in love with me he is crazy about me there is this sense of security this settledness because I see I truly belong I'm not suddenly now doubting my salvation and wondering if God really accepts me if I'm really going to go to heaven there is this overwhelming sense of I belong I belong to him I belong to the family all my guilt and shame it just begins to evaporate because it's just this overwhelming sense of love and acceptance and security here. And it's not just that. But there is this sense of power now in my life that hadn't been there before because in the presence of Jesus, it's not just now about the strength that I have and, and whatever intellect that I have and my gifts and abilities, but this awareness that there is now the power of God, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's living in me. It's surrounding me. There's nothing that's too big because Jesus is right here with me now. And there's this wonderful sense of, of just resting in His provision. I'm no longer fretting about, oh, how am I going to make ends meet and how are we going to take care of this and that because there's this wonderful sense of He knows all of that. He is so fully committed to me. He could no longer abandon me than He could abandon His own Father. He is that committed to caring for me. And there's this wonderful sense of authority now. That the enemy who hates me and who has, has just had such a field day at, at wearing me out at different times in my life, that suddenly now I have confidence, I have boldness in dealing with him, and it's not in my own strength. It's the fact that the shepherd stands with me, and the enemy who has never been afraid of a sheep but who is scared to death of the shepherd now runs at the sound of my voice because when I speak, it is the voice of the shepherd who is speaking through me. I carry his authority, his power, and I get to walk in that all of the time now when I am walking in the presence of Jesus. And there is joy. There is this wonderful, unspeakable joy that begins to well up from deep inside of me that doesn't have anything to do with what's going on around me because it's a joy that is not grounded in my circumstances. It is founded fully in the character of God. 
that He is good and that He will always take care of me. And it doesn't mean that now walking with Jesus is going to mean the absence of all storms and that everything's going to just be peaceful and smooth. No, on the contrary, walking in the presence of Jesus means that at times He's going to lead me into a boat that's going out into the middle of a storm, a storm I wouldn't have otherwise been in, but it's going to be okay because Jesus is in the boat and I'd always rather be in the middle of the storm in a boat on a stormy sea with Jesus there than be safely on a sunny seashore because Jesus' presence makes all the difference because truly better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. It's truth. It's not just a Sunday school answer. It's truth. It's better. But how do you get there? How do you have a day with Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked. If I had been answering this question a few years ago, the answer would have started something like this. If you're going to live in the presence of Jesus, you're going to need to get up earlier. Because he really blesses people who get up early. (laughs) But you're going to need to have a good, long, quiet time. You're going to need to spend more and more time reading the Bible, and you're going to need to take your prayer time and just stretch the daylights out of it. You're just going to need to spend a lot of time praying. And that's how you get closer to Jesus. Well, let me just say, If you have a quiet time every morning, please don't stop. That's a great way to start the day. I don't want to discourage that. But I want to offer you an answer today that I think is far more biblical, practical, and yields much better results than telling you just get up earlier, pray longer, study the Bible more, go to church more, stretch yourself spiritually more, and that way you'll have Jesus with you throughout the day. I really don't think that that's much of a biblical answer right there. We have a different goal. The the goal that I want to set before you today is what I put in your outline, and it is simply this, that we would instead live in an ongoing, unending awareness of God's presence. Where not just during the quiet time box, but through every moment of the day and night, we have this wonderful awareness of the sweet presence of Jesus in our lives. Of His love, of His correction, of His direction in our lives and of His voice speaking to us. And it's just there throughout the day and the night. And it doesn't fit into just a spiritual box. You know, it's interesting to note that in the Old Testament, you you know that the Old and New Testaments are written in different languages. The New Testament is mostly in Greek. But the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, the language of the Jewish people. And in Hebrew... There is no word for spiritual. How weird is that? We talk about spiritual this and spiritual that and the spiritual life all the time. And yet to the Hebrew mind and in the language of the Bible in the Old Testament, there is no word for spiritual. Why would that be? The answer is really simple. God who is spirit and who has made us as spiritual beings who inhabit bodies right now, For God, everything is spiritual. And the concept of naming anything spiritual is so unnecessary that it's absurd. The way that we talk about life is so outside of of a Christian or biblical way of really looking at life. You know, if the disciples had looked at Jesus and said, Hey, Master, tell us how your spiritual life is going. He probably would have looked at them and said, What are you talking about, my spiritual life? 
as if that's a slice of the pie. And yet, isn't that exactly how we look at it? We certainly would be comfortable with the question, wouldn't we? Say, hey, Terry, tell me how your spiritual life is going. And Terry knows what I'm asking. How are things going in your quiet time? How are things going in your small group? How are you doing with your church attendance? And blah, you know, those are the little slices of your spiritual life. You know, every morning, are you spending 30 minutes? Ooh, it's my spiritual time. And then I'll go have my exercise time, and then my breakfast time, and then my work time, and I'm going to fill up all the pie with all this other stuff that goes on top of the most important little spiritual piece. And on Sunday, I'm really spiritual. I give God like a whole, you know, most people give him 60 minutes, but I go to Freedom Church where I have to give him 90 minutes. I mean, big piece of spiritual pie. See, we're more spiritual at Freedom because we gave him 90 minutes on Sunday morning. Jesus would look at that and go, what are you talking about? Your spiritual life, your spiritual slice of your day. Everything in your life is spiritual. This is not some little part that fits into a box. As I said earlier, the passage that we're looking at today, it's a picture of an Old Testament reality where God was, in a sense, (laughs) He put Himself in a box, in a way, to teach us about the reality of who He is and how He works in our lives. And I don't want you to miss this because this this is so profound for us today. I think a lot of times if we don't understand the realities of the Old Testament, we don't understand the incredible privilege that we have today that in the Old Testament... God, who still inhabited all the universe, He still was an omnipresent God, uniquely dwelt in this one particular place, in the box that was the Holy of Holies in the temple. As I said, you've got all these concentric courtyards working their way into the temple that's in the middle of that. So you've got you know, the Gentiles and the Jewish women and the Jewish men and then the priests who could actually come up in the immediate courtyard surrounding the temple. The temple's not a very big building. The priests who are fortunate enough to actually are on duty, the lots have been cast and it's their day to be on duty in the temple, they actually get to go into the front half of the temple. And that's where they served and they, they brought the, the bread and the offerings that were presented to God. And so, wow, they got the really special privilege of drawing that close to God. But it was only one person, that was the high priest, who only one time per year, the Day of Atonement, got to go in to the Holy of Holies. You remember that there's this thick, thick curtain. We never see anything that's the equivalent of it. It's like if you took several, many, many, many uh, heavy curtains like you'd see at a theater and you sewed them all together so that you have like a wall of curtains. That was the temple veil that separated the Holy of Holies where the glory of God dwelt. The Ark of the Covenant was in there. The Ark of the Covenant had become symbolic of God's presence. And once per year, the highest priest was allowed to snake his way underneath the temple veil and carry in a blood offering that's a part of a sacrifice that's offered up on the Day of of Atonement on behalf of the people that was to be sprinkled on the mercy seat, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was considered such an overwhelming thing to actually get to go physically into the presence of God that you'll remember they actually attached little bells at the bottoms of his robe so that they could listen and make sure that he wasn't killed by going into the presence of God. And as a safeguard, they would tie a rope on the high priest's ankle so that when he went in there, uh, if God nixed him, if he wasn't uh, you know, fitting, they could pull him out and appoint a new high priest for next year and wish him well. 
I mean, do you begin to get a sense of just how much God was in the box that was the temple? You want to get near God? You got to get to God in the box. You got to get near the temple. Lord, how lovely is your dwelling place. My heart yearns for the courts of the Lord, preferably the innermost courts, to be near God. But here's the thing. When Jesus came, and he did away with all of these animal sacrifices, which had never been anything more than a temporary covering for our sins, Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 says that Jesus, with his death, became a better sacrifice. Better so that no longer is there a temporary covering. No longer is there a need for anybody to keep offering these blood sacrifices. He became the perfect sacrifice so that now God is no longer in a box. In the moment that Jesus died, what happened in the temple? This incredible tearing sound from top to bottom. The veil is ripped apart by the very hands of God who is declaring God is not in a box. And from the crucifixion to six weeks later or seven, eight weeks later, when on the day of Pentecost, this reality is now completely fleshed out that with the coming of the Holy Spirit, we discover that no longer do we have to travel to see God in a box, that we have to go to the temple to get near God. Paul says, now you are the temple. You don't have to go somewhere to get near God. God has come to you. You are the temple. God himself lives in you so that now you don't just have God in a box somewhere that you can go visit. He's there to be with you through every little part of your day. So that everything that's going on, you get to do in the presence of God. This thing that the psalmist is saying, oh, how my heart longs for this, just to have one day of my life that I could actually be in the presence of God. And God says, guess what? That thing that they longed for, you can have all day. All day today, all night tonight, all day tomorrow, all week long. You can have it for a month. You can have it for a year. You can live in that for the rest of your life. But then we look at our lives and go, hmm, I don't think that's what I'm doing. Anybody feel that way? It's like, okay, I hear what you're saying, and it's good. I just don't really think that's exactly where I'm living. I mean, okay, I'm a follower of Christ. I know that Christ's spirit lives in me. My body is the temple, and he has actually come to live in me. But I don't think I'm really living in that thing of the constant ongoing, unending awareness of His presence and walking in that power and that intimacy. So how do I begin to do that? Well, I want to share with you just briefly three things, three practices, three disciplines, that if you'll adopt them into your life, I'll guarantee you, you will live more and more with an awareness, a constant, ongoing awareness of Jesus' presence in your life. You'll be able to do a full day with Jesus, and if you can do a day, you can do a week and a month and a year, and way beyond. And the first thing is this. It is that you must incorporate a constant communication with God as your practice. First Thessalonians five sixteen and 17 says this, Always be joyful, never stop praying. I used to read that and think, those two verses do not go together. Always be joyful, never stop praying. And I'm just being honest to say, most of the time when I tried to spend a lot of time in prayer, it was pretty much where my joy came to an end. How many of you have ever seen the old, silly, 
comedy, black and white movie, Young Frankenstein. Y'all remember that? Some of you may not want to admit to watching that. It, it was a funny, stupid movie. Do you remember the scene in the movie where Dr. Frankenstein is going in the room to be with the monster, and he looks at his assistant, and he says, whatever you hear in here, you lock the door and don't unlock it no matter what you hear going on inside of this room. Well, I'm going to admit to you, there was a time in my life where I was trying to be serious about my prayer time. I was going to be close to Jesus. And my approach to my hour of prayer was about like Dr. Frankenstein going in that room. I, I had just read Larry Lee's book, Could You Not Tarry One Hour? And it was basically, there's some good stuff in that book, but the long and short of what I took out of that book was, I am such a pathetic Christian. And his call was to spend an hour in prayer every day, and you're not much of a Christian if you don't. So I'm like, Jesus, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to spend an hour in prayer. And I remember when I had finished the book, and today's the day. From now on, Jesus, I'm giving you an hour in prayer at the start of my day. And I remember going to the guest bedroom and I'm going to close this door and I'm like Dr. Frankenstein I'm looking back and you know just in my heart I'm thinking you know to my wife at the time no matter what you hear in here don't unlock this door until I've been here an hour <clears throat> well it felt about like that I went in with the best of intentions and in about 10 or 15 minutes I'm thinking I'm pretty much done here you know I'm, I'm pretty much used up and, I, and I'm watching the clock and uh, <clears throat> it's a long hour to say the least it just stretches on and on. And I'm, at the end of that, I'm thinking, I don't really feel that close to Jesus. I hope this gets better. You want to know how many days this lasted for me? Two. <laughs> My big commitment to spend an hour in prayer every day so that I can have Jesus with me all day long. And you know what I discovered? Is Jesus is not in that box. Don't get me wrong. If you spend an hour in prayer, that is awesome. I've got a good friend who spends multiple hours every day in prayer. have such tremendous respect for that. But I want to tell you that the challenge of here's how you have an awareness of Jesus in your life throughout every moment of the day, here's how you pray continually is you start praying and you pray longer and longer and longer until you're praying all the time. That does not get you there. And if that's the plan that you've been pursuing, it's okay to stop. Because to see how long you can pray is not the way to get to a point of learning to pray continually. I said recently in a sermon, uh, I held up my cell phone and I said, you know how much this becomes a stumbling block to our intimacy with God because we're all the time turned on and dialed in. I, I want to make a different point out of this because one neat thing that God has shown me is that while this can be a real interruption to you know, prayer time and having a quiet time and intimacy, actually a smartphone becomes a wonderful teaching tool, a wonderful way for us to learn how to pray continually. Now, years ago when... People went from just having flip phones that they talked on to, you know, smartphones that you could do all this other stuff on. I used to kind of poke fun at that, and it was like, why do you need to be able to do all those other things? And I just initially, when they started texting, I'm like, how stupid is that? You're holding a phone in your hand. Why don't you dial a number and talk to somebody? And now, let me tell you, I have done a 180 on that subject. <laughs> now, I think texting is the most awesome thing, and you know why. Because you can, in the busyness of your day... You can take care of all of these communications with all these other people without having to have a long conversation every time. You can, in a matter of seconds, just text, and it's crazy. Some people, you know, my, my youngest daughter can text faster than I can talk. It's, it's amazing. You know? And just in a few seconds, you send out that communication, and you can move on to the next thing. Well, that enables us to stay dialed in with certain people that we really care about all day long. I mean, do you ever just look back 
at your text communication through a day that you look back and you had a busy day, you had a productive day, you got the things done that you needed to get done, and yet when you, you look at your communication like with your spouse or your, you know, your child or your boyfriend or girlfriend, and you realize, wow, we actually communicated a bunch of different times in the course of the day, and it didn't mess up my day. I was able to, to get done when I needed to get done, and it really was like I was with them all day long, even though we weren't together at all, but we had all these little short bursts of communication all day long, and so we really were dialed in, and I was still able to do what I needed to do all day long, and this person that I care about was sort of with me and all of that. Friends, that's a picture of praying continually when you learn to do that with God. When you learn to begin to send up text message prayers, now don't get me wrong, this doesn't take the place of having some time, hopefully on a daily basis, that you get to just be still and just enjoy God's presence as you have some time to commune with Him in prayer. But by the way, when you learn to text message prayer, you don't necessarily have to have an hour two hours three hours every day to do that you can have a little bit of devoted time that you're just talking with God but it's so liberating that now throughout the day I don't have to go back to my God in a box thing oh wow I need to stop and really spend some time praying about that you see I was I'm so OCD about some things and I was so schooled in the thing of you know there are right ways to pray and so if I'm going to pray, I need to at least do the ACTS. Here, you all know that, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So like, if I'm going to pause now and I'm going to pray for Todd, well, Lord, first of all, I want to just adore you and thank you for all of your characteristics and for your holiness. You know, and now I want to thank you. And now, God, I, you know, I need to confess my sin. And now I can pray for Todd. Are you not surprised that there would be lots of times where it's like, I need to pray for Todd, but I don't really have time for that right now. You know, I don't have 20 minutes to do ACTS. I'm... When you learn to text message pray, just shooting up these arrow prayers, it's just so much easier to let every moment of the day become a reminder of God, of either God's goodness or of your need for God or God's provision, and whatever happens in the course of the day. It becomes an occasion to just connect with God. God, thank you for a great night's sleep. So good that you let me get up feeling good today. Thanks that I don't have that headache again today and that I feel great. Just whatever you encounter today, Lord, it's, it's a big day ahead, a lot on the plate. Please go before me and all that. Sit down to talk with somebody. Oh, God, I've got a feeling there's going to be some, some tough stuff here. Would you give me wisdom for this? Would you speak in this conversation? God, this is a, a tough situation that I'm going to be dealing with in counseling or in this situation at work. Would you please speak in this person's life? When you just hear of a need, oh God, would you, t would you help that? Would you comfort them? Would you bring healing? Would you help them to press into you in that? Just through the day, God, what a, what a gorgeous sunset. Thank you for that. That was a gift. Just whatever it is that you encounter, just take a moment to send something that would be the length of a text. And as you're doing that, you know what's so cool? As you're popping stuff out to God, over time, you know what you begin to discover? is God starts dropping stuff into you. Things that you don't hear a voice, and yet there's just this awareness in your heart that God's speaking back. God is receiving. This is huge to learn to just practice His presence throughout the day. So constant communication with God is, is a must. Using text message prayers to stay connected with God through the day. Secondly, Instant obedience to God. 
Galatians 5.25 says this, Since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Now, I just want to tell you that this whole thing of, of living constantly aware of the presence of God and being in communication with God, God's going to speak back. God's going to be talking probably more than we're talking. And the truth of the matter is, He's probably not going to be chatting with you about the weather. And He's probably not going to just be, you know, taking up space, taking up time, talking to you about, you know, the score of the ball game last night. Now, He may just spend time talking to you about you and declaring His love for you and speaking to you about stuff in your life. But I'm going to tell you this, you can count on this. A lot of what He's going to talk about, a lot of what He's going to say in your life, it's going to involve instruction. It's going to be about him giving direction where he shows you what he's up to and where he's going, yeah, and I want you to get in on that. So I didn't just show you this so you could go, oh, cool, good for you, God. Golf clap for you. Thanks that you're doing that. No, God's going, no, I showed you that because I want you in the middle of it. Here's what I'm doing today in the world right around you. And, oh, by the way, uh, you're going to be the one who instigates that. You're going to be a driving force in that. So that's why I showed you this. That's why I spoke to you about this. Understand, this is like the, the driving principle. If you've ever done the study by Henry Blackaby, experiencing God, knowing and doing the will of God, the seven realities of, of, of hearing and knowing God's voice, that it's all about God, you know, the very beginning point, God is at work in the world, and the second principle, God invites you to join Him in His work. And the whole deal then is you learning to discern the voice of, God, of the Lord to recognize what He's doing, what He's calling you to, and that when you hear it, that's God's invitation to join Him then. Instant obedience, an immediate yes to whatever it is that God is saying because now God's always saying, hey, I'm changing the world. I'm setting things back in order. I'm turning everything back upside right, and I want you to be a part of doing that right here. So me speaking to you about that, that's the invitation for you to jump in the middle of that. So the Galatians 5.25 passage is saying this wonderful reality. You are the temple. The Spirit lives in you. Now the challenge is keep in lockstep with the Holy Spirit. We're learning to march right alongside the Holy Spirit who is accomplishing the will of God in the world. And our whole thing of learning to hear from God isn't so that we can go, oh, this is so cool. This is even better than my quiet time. It's like a 24-hour quiet time. I just feel spiritual all the time now. Well, wonderful. Great. That is not the conclusion of the matter. The point is to get us moving with God, God who is ushering in His kingdom. And so now we're learning to march in lockstep with what the Spirit is saying and doing. That's the goal, that we would be intimate with God and that we would represent God and be in the middle of what He's doing in the world. And as you do that, it's really amazing how much your eyes become open to, wow, God really is working. He's around me. He's in me. And He's showing me things that... Clearly, it's his voice in his hand, and it's critical that you just become instantaneous in your responses to what he's saying. Now, I don't know how this works for you, but in my life, when he speaks, he does not give the detail that I'm after, and it kind of drives me crazy. I'm learning to live with it, but it's really bugged me for all of my life, that when God speaks in my life, he gives, he is the master of text messages. He is the master of like the five-word text messages with me. He drops stuff in where, you know, I'm wanting to text back, uh, could you give a little more detail? Where, you know, God gives a nudge, and the only nudge is, you know, a person that I haven't thought of in a while. And, you know, I'm just going through my day, and it's like, Johnny, 
okay, what about Johnny? Where did that come from? And here's the confusing thing. He does it at the level of my thoughts where I'm going, okay, did I just think about Johnny? Or did the Holy Spirit just put a thought in my head about Johnny? What about Johnny? Well, there's that thought of, you know, maybe I'm supposed to contact Johnny today. Well, what's going on with Johnny? And he doesn't say. There's just sort of this problem. Why don't you call Johnny? Why don't you text Johnny and find out what's going on with Johnny and see if he needs encouragement or help or whatever. So, you know, now the question is, will I act on that or will I just go, well, I'll take that under consideration. Maybe I'll bump into him at church next Sunday and we'll see. Well, you know what? That's a missed opportunity because if the Holy Spirit nudged me and just brought Johnny's name or face to mind for me, you can count on this. Something's going on in Johnny's life. He either needs a word of encouragement or he's got something going on. He needs somebody praying with him or helping him. It's amazing how many times when that happens, if I'll be obedient to it immediately, I'll call, I'll text, I'll check in. I don't know why I'm checking in other than just this person came to mind that that person will go, holy smoke, I cannot believe that you called. How did you know to call me today? How did you know that I was in the middle of blah, blah, blah? And I'm thinking, I didn't have any clue you were in the middle of that. But... That just confirms for me that Jesus knew. And I was just calling because I think he was the one who was telling me you, you needed to have somebody reach out and say you're loved and you're thought of. How can I help you in that? It's amazing how moving that is for that person and for you. I mean, how many times have you just felt impressed you know, to write a check or to anonymously give a gift to somebody that you don't even know they have a need in their life and yet something inside you Led you to do that. I'm pretty sure that that's the Holy Spirit when that happens because I don't think my flesh ever is just wanting to you know, go stroke a check for a few hundred dollars to somebody that I'm not aware is in need. I'm usually pretty sure that's the Holy Spirit. But when you go and you say, I was supposed to give you this, and when you, know, you see the tears well up and a person's going, holy cow, I had not even told anybody. How did you know that we had this challenge, that we had this need? I didn't have any idea. I just knew I was supposed to give you what's in that envelope and that's the whole deal. But it's instant obedience. If you don't do it right then, you miss the opportunity. Todd seeing you on the front row. I remember a day uh, several years ago. Todd was actually in my youth group. Or actually, I think was maybe a freshman in college when I started as a youth pastor in this area. And one day, I don't even remember why I was where I was, but I was 100 or more miles from here driving down the road. And I grew up in a home where we were taught, you don't stop for strangers on the highway. You know, you'll, you'll get killed that way. You'll just, you'll just, that's dangerous. But I'm driving down the road, and I had taken an exit somewhere 100 or so miles from here, and I passed a car that I did not recognize, and I didn't see who was in it, because I didn't care, because I don't stop for people beside the road. I'm, like, not mechanically inclined. If your car's broken down, I can't help you anyway. So, you know, I am blowing on by. And, man, something inside me said, turn around and go back and check on those people. And I'm thinking, I don't if their car's broken down, I sure can't fix it. And, you know, want to have that little dialogue right there. And the, it clearly the Spirit's going, turn around and go, but I don't know these people. God, and I'm far from home. I've got other things to do. Turn around. So I wheeled around, and I went back. And it's Todd and another of my former youth. Didn't know the car. Didn't see them until I got back. And it's like, holy smoke. And they were stranded and needed a way to get back to Fairhope. They weren't going to die without that or anything. But it's just such a cool reminder that the Lord knows what's going on around us, the things that we don't know, and that God is so able to go, oh, you guys are in need over here? Oh, well, I've got a resource right here that's coming up the road. I'll just tell them to, to address that. If we've got a heart that's sensitive to the Lord, and if we're quick to obey, guess what happens? You get a lot more instruction dropped in. The more that you have a heart that says, okay, God, I'm not sure who's in that car, and I hope to goodness it's not some crazed maniac, but, you know, 
I'll go back and just see. Maybe they need a cell phone, maybe, you know, whatever. I'll go back and just see if you're in that. Can I tell you a couple of things that will happen if you do that? One, your willingness to immediately obey is going to get you dialed in in a way that you hear the leadings of the Holy Spirit much more frequently and recognize them for what they are. Here's the other thing that will happen. Sometimes you'll get it wrong. That's not comforting, is it? But you will. I know this one from experience, that the more you're just going, God, I want to be involved in what you're doing. I want to hear and I want to obey that. And so... If you're like me, and and I know that there are some of you out there, you hear God so much more clearly than I do, and I'm jealous of you. I wish that I I got all the details. And and I'll hear people, God told me this, and it'll be as vivid as any book that you could read. And I'm like, ah, I wish I got that version from God. I get these nudges that are real general. Just start out in that direction, and then I'll make it clear. And it doesn't come that way for me. And so... What I found along the way is as I learned to try and be sensitive to that, trying to figure out what was just a random thought that I had and what was the Spirit of God giving me that thought, there will be times where when I'm trying to obey and it's like, okay, that idea came in my head. That must have been the Holy Spirit. And so I jump into that, and guess what? Sometimes it wasn't. And you know how I know? Because it just kind of (laughs) goes, you know. Nothing good comes from it. It's nothing but, you know, confusion and just, just... Nothing good that you could tell. What do you think God thinks of that? I'll tell you what I think. I think God looks at that and goes, I think he just smiles and goes, I know what your heart was in that. You just did that because you you had that idea and you thought that was the voice of my spirit and you ran into it full speed trying to obey me. And nope, that wasn't me talking at all. And you figured that out soon enough because clearly my hand was not in that. And that felt uncomfortable and awkward. But you know what? I was so pleased with the fact that you stepped up to the plate and you swung as hard as you could thinking that you were obeying me. And you whiffed. You just you missed completely. But that's okay. Because I'm going to keep throwing you pitches and you're going to connect more times than not on that. Can you identify with that part of it? How many times have you thought you were obeying God and you missed? It's okay. There is a lot of grace for those moments when you went full speed trying to obey God. There'll be a lot more times that you connect than that you swing and miss. Instant obedience is critical. And it is important to understand that delayed obedience is pretty much the same as disobedience. When we were raising our girls, our oldest, Whitney, is wonderful. She loves the Lord, and she's had a faith that's really solid. But she was the strong-willed of our kids. And one of the things that she was strong-willed about is she was willing to obey, just not in our time frame. It felt like every instruction we gave to her through several of her growing up years was always followed up with, do I have to do it now? And that just becomes a test of the will at that point because it's like, I wouldn't have told you now if I wanted you to do it tomorrow. I told you now because I want you to, why do I have to do it now? Because delayed obedience is disobedience. That was the mantra of our house. Stop trying to put it off. Because you know how that plays out when you're raising kids? If they can succeed in putting it off about two-thirds of the time, it never gets done. Amen? Amen. Same thing happens with us and God. I think that may have been God telling me I need to call and check on this person or I may need to go and do this. I'll, I'll, I'll sort of think about that and pray about that for a while and we'll see about that. Yeah, you sit on that and a lot of times you'll wind up not doing it. Delayed obedience is disobedience. So immediate obedience is critical. And the final piece is this, daily desperation for God. The the psalmist said in verse 2 of Psalm 84, I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. 
When's the last time you could say that you, your soul really cried out like that for God? My heart and flesh yearn for God. I long for God. More likely, for most of us, we can say, mm, I remember a time when I felt that way. That's not where I am right now. But I can remember a time when just every fiber of my being just longed to be near God. Well, if that's where you are right now, how do you have that earnestness again? How do you have that hunger? The bottom line is really simple. You develop a hunger for whatever appetite you, you create by how you feed yourself. You know, if you are feeding a particular appetite, we, we develop an appetite for whatever we frequently feed on. And so if you've developed an appetite for the things of the world, the good life, whatever's going to make life more comfortable, more toys, more stuff to make you more happy, I'll guarantee you this, you'll never have enough. You'll just have a bigger appetite for more. It's what Ecclesiastes says. This gathering of more money and stuff, there's no end to it. You will never have enough. If that's the appetite that you develop by trying to acquire more stuff, you will never be satisfied. But you can develop a different kind of appetite. If you feed yourself with just feasting on God's presence, pursuing Christ, when you've ever really experienced His manifest presence in your life, oh my goodness, it just stirs up this appetite that you didn't know you had before. And when you begin to seek after that, the more you seek after it, the more it creates an appetite for that in you. You know, I spent a huge portion of my life not liking Chinese food at all. You know why I didn't like Chinese food? Because I hardly ever had Chinese food. When I was growing up, there wasn't Chinese food within 50 miles of us. And the couple of times I ever had it, I didn't know what to order. And when I got it, I thought it tasted like sewage. I mean, I just didn't like it at all. And I got grown up, and I discovered Chinese food and decided that stuff is fine. It is some kind of good. And until I was in my 40s, I thought Thai food was something that third world people only would eat. And in the last couple of years, somebody introduced me to good Thai food around here. And guess what surprising things I have discovered? Not only do I just have cravings for Chinese food now, I have cravings for Thai food. How did I get those cravings? They weren't there for 40 years. I got a taste of it. And I went back for some more and some more again. And after about the third time of that, I just find myself some days just craving Thai food. Well, that principle is borne out in a lot of things in life. If you will begin to press in, earnestly press in for fresh encounters with Christ, living in the presence of Christ, there's going to be a hunger that's created in you to experience more and more of that. David was that kind of person who would say, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in Him. Psalm 63 may be the, the most classic passage of that where he says, Oh God, you are my God. And I long for you. My whole being desires you. Like a dry, worn-out, and waterless land, my soul is thirsty for you. Let me see you in the sanctuary. Let me see how mighty and glorious you are. Your constant love is better than life itself, and so I will praise you. David had that kind of hunger and thirst for God. How do you get that? Well, some of it is you press in, and the more you press in, the more you get hungry for it. But some of it is so simple. It's just like in life, you know, I've learned when I work hard and when I work out, when I am going to the gym harder and more regular than ever, there is this thing that goes with that that is not so great, but it is very predictable. 
I want to eat everything in sight. If I'm in the gym working out five days a week, I, I would eat that chair that you're sitting in right now. I'm so hungry all the time. Working creates hunger. And if there's not a hunger in you for God, let me ask you this basic question. Where are you involved in serving the Lord at a level that is way over your head? I'm not talking about just some little Mickey Mouse thing that you do so that you can say, oh yeah, I serve Jesus over here. I'm talking about you being deep in the water of serving Jesus, involved in the lives of people, where if Jesus doesn't show up, if his power and provision isn't present, you are in a lot of trouble. Because when you get so involved in serving him, ministering in the lives of other people, that you're living at that level, that you need God badly, guess what? You hunger for him deeply. You are earnest at that point. It's the working, it's the serving that stirs up this deep hunger. You know, if you're just kind of living for the good life, it's all good because I've got a big house and I've got a new SUV and I've got money in the bank and, so, you know, I want a little more, but I don't need a lot of Jesus. Jesus, could you just put a cherry on top? Make it not rain today. Make it be 72.5 degrees outside. That's all I need from you, Jesus. That is no hunger for God. And that's about where the average Christian lives until you get sick, until somebody in your family gets cancer, until somebody gets hooked on drugs, until somebody's about to get a divorce, and then we're desperate for Jesus. Well, okay, needs will make us hungry and desperate for God. But serving, pursuing, that'll create a hunger for God. It's truth. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than live in the tents of the wicked. It is truth. Lord Jesus, would you drive this truth deep into our hearts? Would you convince us in the deepest part of who we are that to know you and to live with a constant ongoing awareness of your presence is better than any life we'd find out in the world? Would you help us to let go of the good and to, to hunger and chase after the better that you have for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.